So, well, let's get into the word this morning. We are back in John, and uh, you know, last time we were talking about Jesus and how he was talking with this Samaritan woman, which is very unusual. All the you know the disciples, they were all astonished, and they were kind of like get that look on their face like, what? what? What's going on? You know, just they viewed Jesus as a rabbi. And first off, rabbis didn't talk to, to just any woman. I mean, it just wasn't appropriate in, in that time. You know, they could be married and you didn't, you know, and, uh, yeah, you don't want to go there. But here he was. So they come back from Sychar, the city near there, and Jesus is hanging out with this woman. Innocent conversation, but it's a woman. And the woman eventually runs back to her village and, and tells everybody and brings out all the people and they receive Christ. And it was an amazing time uh, for that town. And they're still trying to figure out who he is, but this whole town, these outsiders of the Jewish faith, uh, they wanted to be insiders, but they, were, they were, were only half Jewish. So the Jewish people themselves just treated them like dirt. And here they came to believe the Lord and Savior. So Jesus takes his disciples back with him to the village, and this kind of had to be a, you know, had to be a sight. It had to change perspectives, right? I mean, I grew up in a middle-class white town outside of, outside of um, uh, Houston, and I think we had, uh, I think we had one, um, one uh, African-American going to our school, and that was about it. We, we had a few Hispanic going to our school, but not much. And then I went to University of Houston as an athletic trainer, and, and all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by all sorts of different cultures. And I mean, like 80% of the football team was African-American and so forth. So I got to know one of the guys in the first Thanksgiving, uh, but you know, usually we went up to grandparents up in Oklahoma, and the first Thanksgiving, we had a game that weekend. So, so one of the football players and I became friends, and he goes, hey, why don't you come with me to my family? He's like, do you know what collard greens are? And I'm like, well, Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, and so, and he goes, do you know how to play dominoes? And then they got real excited when they figured out I knew how to play dominoes. And, and the only caveat was they said, well, well, once you come over, don't go outside because you won't be welcome in this neighborhood. Because I mean, you're talking about a different culture shock. Okay. This is what these guys were experiencing. Now I have friends now from all over the world, uh, India to Kenya to Greece, Angola to, to Australia to the Philippines now to Hawaii of all places. But, you know, all different types of walks of life. And we need to break down those stereotypes maybe that we've grown up with. How do you do that? Well, one, getting out of your own culture, right? But also loving, laughing, and playing together. Building relationships together. And here we find the disciples spending two nights in the Samaritan village, and it was probably the first time it happened for any of these guys. So John writes about that, and, and Jesus will continue to shock them over the years, uh, you know, and they decided to go north, and let's jump down to verse 43, and I guess I ought to get this up and going here. There we go, I think. Well, go to the first slide for me. Oh, there we go. Okay. Verse 43. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that the prophet has no honor in his own country. 
When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he had visited Canaan in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. Now, the first time he was in Galilee, uh, you know, we, we talked about this. He was at the wedding feast, right? And, he, he, you know, uh, they, they ran out of, out of wine for the wedding party, and his mom kind of coaxed him into, uh, uh, into making some wine out of water and all that stuff. You know, he was somewhat anonymous when that happened, but not anymore. Some of them had gone to Jerusalem, and they'd seen what happened in the temple. They'd seen how upset that he'd got, that all the money changers were in there, taking advantage of the people and so forth. So now the people of Galilee are hearing that Jesus is coming to town. And just like today, when a celebrity comes to town, what happens? People want to see him, right? They want to, and it's kind of funny, we like to worship people, and I don't understand that at all. I mean, they're just people. I've met a lot of famous people, and guess what? They all have the same thing in common. They're all human, okay? They're just like you and I. But people want to see famous people. And it goes on, it says, and then there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. This guy is focused. You need to come. Verse 50, Go, Jesus replies, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when the boy, uh, when, when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and the whole household believed this was a second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now, this is a fascinating story. And once again, John starts to give us another piece of, of this puzzle, uh, this, this you know, 100 million piece puzzle uh, of Jesus. And he gives another piece to it. And John will continue to give us different perspectives of who Jesus is. Just when we think we've got Jesus pegged down to this is who he is, this is how he acts, he does something completely different, and this is what John gives us. One thing that John does is is he doesn't concentrate on the chronological order. So all you type A people that read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you, you open the book of John, and it doesn't match up, it drives you nuts, right? Anybody? No? Some of those, yeah, I mean, you know, it just doesn't match up, and you're just like, you get a little confused. But, but his goal is to show us who Christ is. So first, he is talking with a Jewish teacher named Nicodemus. Then completely different, a Samaritan woman at the well. So you go from the top dog of Jerusalem, the top teacher, the top rabbi, to the lowly of the lowless. And then he does something completely different here. A Roman official, a bureaucrat, middle management, who is not even a Jew, and his son is sick 20 miles away. Now, 20 miles away, not a big deal in a car, right? 
I mean, no big deal. He had connections, you know, but, uh, but it, it, you know, it, it's beautiful in Capernaum. Up in, up in that area, you're on the lakeside, and he's got it made. I mean, this is, this is like the Coast Guard in Lake Tahoe. Did you know there's a Coast Guard in Lake Tahoe? I mean, you kind of got it made, right, in, in that, if you got that uh, assignment. I mean, it's a lake. But this man has discovered power and money is not solving the problem for his son. And it's interesting. Those that have a lot of money, when it comes down to health issues, Power and money doesn't solve the issues. The scriptures tell us that he had a very high fever, and, and being a Roman official, he consulted probably all the doctors and, and probably even some of the Roman gods of healing, you know. And so, so he leaves his son bedside. Could you imagine this? Leaving your son, doesn't even send a servant, doesn't send his wife, but he goes 20 miles to see Jesus himself. And he's like, Jesus, man, I need your help. Now, did you notice Jesus' answer? If you just read the word, you will notice sometimes how simple it is. As a teacher and as a pastor, you know, sometimes we complicate things, but, but the simple word of God oftentimes is the best. He's kind of a blunt guy. Here, this Roman official is falling at Jesus' feet. My son is sick which would be really weird for him to do to begin with. But Jesus just kind of cuts right to the chase, and he says, guys, unless I do these little tricks for you, healings after healing after healing, you, you, you will stop believing in me if I don't keep it up. And this guy's like, come on, Jesus, my son. I mean, where's Jesus' bedside manner here? You're dealing with a man's son who's sick, and you're talking about, well, no one's going to believe me unless I keep healing. And, he, and the guy's like, no, 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 focus here. My son is sick. They don't teach this type of uh, counseling in counseling classes, you know? You're supposed to have empathy here. Now, Jesus, he's going to heal his son, but he's also saying one day you'll get tired of these healings, and you will crucify me. He's already setting that up. Now, this guy is really cool. It is like he, he, you know, he could have pulled rank on Jesus. Well, you know who I am. I'm a Roman official in this area, and, and you need to come. I'm going to arrest you, and you're gonna, I'm going to take you. But Jesus says, all you guys is want, you know, all you want is miracles. And the guy says, no, I just want a miracle for my son. That's who I'm concerned about. Get on a horse. Go to Capernaum, because my son needs you. But Jesus replies in verse 50, go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. This is what's amazing to me. No other evidence other than Jesus' word. And he goes home, 20 to 25 miles away. He won't even make it home by the end of the day, most likely. That's a long walk. But he's headed that way. Probably spends the night somewhere in an inn along the way. Or maybe he travels all night long to get home. Either way, he meets a servant when he has his hope that his belief is correct. And it's an interesting thing about Jesus. He will do this over and over and over. And I believe he still does this today. 
He will require the man to do something different than what the man was planning to do. He wanted Jesus to come, right? Here's my plan. If I could just get him to just, you know, a person will come. This is what I want. Jesus, this is, this is exactly what I want. This is exactly what you need to do. But Jesus will have a conversation, of, uh, you know, that sorts everything out. And he's saying, this is, a, this is a bigger truth to it. You will have to do something. And he's like, oh, come on, you need to just come and touch my, my son. He's like, no, 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 you need to go. I've already touched him. You need to believe now. And that's what's so interesting. If you want something from the Lord, especially something like healing, I promise you, number one, the Lord will not do it the way you want it done. Have you, have you ever experienced that? The Lord doesn't do things the way you, you would do it. And this is a frustrating thing about the Lord. Because sometimes our prayers are very specific. Lord, here is my timeline. And he says to me, Alan, you, you, your timeline is all screwed up. This isn't the timeline. And the way you're talking to me is wrong. And, you know, and he does it in his way. And the thing about the Lord is this. We must let him do it his way. He does it. I mean, he knows everything. And he knows which way is best. Now, I don't know about you, but don't we feel like this? We don't say it out loud, but don't we feel, uh, feel like this? Well, if everybody would do things my way, right? Or is it just me? I'm the only one with the big head, right? And the Lord's like, your way is not good enough. I believe sometimes we will not see answered prayers because we do not release the control factor. Lord, this is how, what I want done, and this is how I want it done. No, Lord, Lord, Lord. No, 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 no. Hey, you're doing it the wrong way. Follow me. You have to, Lord. Sometimes his answer will be, wait, 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 wait a second. Or no, you know, sometimes my kids, you know, I, I really want to do something for them, but they're, they're being, you know, just acting up or something, or they, or they demand it. And I'm like, mm, mm -mm, no, I'm, I don't think so. Not right now, you know. And then you, the plan is, yeah, I want to help them, but I'm like, oh, no, no, we're going to wait on this one. Or sometimes it's a downright no. And sometimes he uses the crisis that we're in to teach us something. Let's look and see what this guy learns from this crisis. Verse 51, while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news his boy was, that his boy was living. Now, it's either the middle of the night or the next day now, we're not sure. And his servants uh, love him enough to come find him on the road. They're all excited. And, it, you know, it's about, about well, I guess it's about 1 p.m. now. And, and, uh, or he's asking, when? When did this happen? About 1 p.m. We wanted to find you before you embarrass yourself in front of this Jewish rabbi. And he's like, well, hold on, guys. He's the one that actually healed him. That's amazing to me. So he and his whole household believed. The disciples had to have been blown away by this. First, the Samaritan woman and the whole village starts believing because of her. Now a Roman household, and we're only in John chapter 5 here. 
And John is revealing these things. Uh, you know, this guy's a Roman. He didn't come from the Jews. This guy goes home and tells his whole household what happened, and he leads them all into the saving knowledge of Jesus. And this guy doesn't even have a Bible. Doesn't use the Roman road. You know, just, okay, the four points of following Jesus. You know, do you believe this? Do you believe that? He doesn't use the Roman road. He just uses Jesus. Well, actually, he kind of does use the Roman road, I guess, because they're on the Roman road. But that's a whole nother point. He just goes home and goes, wow, look at my son. This is great. And they all become believers because of it. Now, interesting thing happens here. In Luke chapter 8, Luke records that there's a woman named Joanna. And this woman lives in the region. And her husband is an official in Herod's court. Now, we don't know if it's the same man or not. His name, of all, of all things, his name is Chusa. But a lot of scholars think that this is Chusa, this Roman official, because their household started, started helping out and funding part of Jesus' ministry. Isn't that amazing? A Roman official funding part of Jesus' ministry through his wife. So she becomes, you know, starts to funnel that, uh, that money. And it's one of the main reasons that Jesus could, could travel and, and to teach other people. And what I find fascinating is that the ministry, you know, in the ministry of Jesus is this. What starts out as a crisis ends up with a whole family that's saved. And when we trust in Jesus, when we truly trust in Jesus... We trust that he's in control. <laughs> That's a hard one, isn't it? When we truly do that, other people can become affected because of it. I promise you something. In the middle of the mess, Jesus is there. In the middle of the mess, he is there. And we're often like, well, then you need to show yourself, Jesus, because I'm not seeing it. But Jesus uses this one child who is sick to bring others into eternal life. And we would say, well, well, Jesus, why would you allow my child to be sick? And Jesus is like, I got a bigger picture here. You're going to go through this tough time, but I have a bigger picture, and it's going to affect so much more than just one child being sick. Started as a crisis. I mean, this man had it made until his son got sick. Sometimes God allows crises so we can go, wait a second, what is life really about? Now, I want to move into chapter 5 to, to contrast this with another, another healing he does. But one last point that I want to point out at the end of chapter 4. We see Jesus pushing this man's faith. He says, you need to go home. He's already been healed. Now, this guy has a choice. He can say, well, give me proof, or he can start walking. How far would you travel on the word of Jesus? I mean, we all say, oh, I'd travel to the ends of the earth. But in reality, it's a hard thing to do. Because we like to see the evidence, right? Right? We need to keep doing what Jesus tells us to do. 
This is an important biblical principle. If Jesus tells you to do something, keep doing it or go that direction. But oftentimes we feel like we don't hear from the Lord. And a lot of times that's because we didn't do what Jesus asked us to do. And he's waiting for us to do it. This guy was exercising what he learned in Hebrews about faith. 11, you know, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is a substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. I know one of the songs that we were singing today kind of talked about that. Pretty much saying, hurry up because I want to, I want to finally see it all. I want to see it all. Come now, Lord. Now take this apart and you'll see that it is not logical at all. Faith is a substance of things hoped for. Substance is what? Material. It's like this is substance. Hope is what? Hope is invisible. Faith is a, is a material of the invisible. Faith is the evidence. And the evidence is eyewitness stuff. I saw it. But here, faith is the evidence of what you cannot see. The man began his first day of meeting Jesus. He began it with faith. Why is it so hard for us who have walked years with the Lord to sometimes exercise faith? I don't, I don't get that. And I, I've seen it over and over, and I, I've done it myself over and over. And we're just like, but Lord, I have faith. And he's like, well, then act upon that faith. Put on your shoes. Do something. Get out there. See, you will never understand or see the Lord without faith. Because faith is the substance of what I hope for. And we have to keep walking. Chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem from one of the, uh, for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate Pool, which, is Aram which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, a house of grace is what it means, and which is surrounded by five uh, covered colonnades, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now here's a, here's a picture of it. Um, it's way down deep. We cannot go down into that pool area uh, because it's been covered up and covered up and covered up and built upon, and they dug out where the pool area is, so you can see it from above, but you can't really go down into it if you go to Jerusalem. Now, the, it says in other scripture, we understand this, and, and some of the Jewish writings that you, you know, have a place where, where basically the disabled would work, and, and you know, so there. Uh, there's some shade down there, and there's a legend about this pool. Uh, the NIV actually eliminates a verse. If you read some other scriptures, um, it has well, it, it has a, another verse added in that was not part of the, the earliest writings that we found. And it says, from time to time, the angel of the Lord would come down and stir the waters. The first one into the pool, after each disturbance, would be cured of whatever diseases he had. So, I mean, this was kind of the thought. We don't know if this actually was true or not, but there was a, it was a legend that was commonly accepted. 
But John did not write that part. Now, it was probably not an angel that did this. When they excavated the pool, they found out two things. It was fed by subterranean springs. Okay, so you would have stuff that would bubble up from, from under the ground and the water was disturbed and everybody was like, oh, it's a miracle, it must be an angel. You know, you could imagine something like that. Another thing they found was that at the top of the temple, they have these water gates. Now, why would you have water gates on top of the temple? Well, you could imagine after that many sacrifices, what the temple top would look like, right? Because they would have to drain what? The blood. So it would get pretty messy up there, and they would, uh, you know, ever so often they would open up these gates and they would wash down the 35 acres up there. And Bethsaida is part of this water system, so when the guys would come in and they would clear the temple, uh, the water level was just right in these pools, and it would suck some of that water out and would disturb the water. Now, you could make an argument saying that some of that blood could have flowed down into the system and got in this pool, and that blood was a healing grace that happened. Now, we don't know if these rumors were true or not, but this was the belief system of what was happening. So Jesus comes by and sees this 38-year-old invalid there. Now, it's kind of interesting. Uh, when we were in Israel, I was trading off with a pastor teaching at different places, and it was my birthday. I just turned 38 years old, and I had the day off. I'm like, yes, I get to enjoy the day, right? And then our, our, um, our guide comes up to us and goes, by the way, the Temple Mount is open today, so we're changing our whole schedule and uh, you can't bring Bibles up on the Temple Mount, so leave those you know, in your hotel room. And so we went up to the Temple Mount, and then we ended up at Bethsaida after, you know, because it's right down from the Temple Mount. And he goes, okay, who, who was doing the teaching? He had the, the two pastors over. He's like, okay, who's supposed to teach today? And I'm like, well, that was supposed to be me, but I didn't prep. And here I'm teaching on the 38th birthday about a 38 invalid at the pool of Bethsaida. I just thought that was kind of uh, an off note that has nothing to do with the sermon. Um, but I thought I'd throw that in there. So verse 5, one, uh, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in that condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, my smart aleck personality is like what? Well, duh. I mean, come on. Am I an idiot, Rabbi? I mean, come on. Sir, the invalid replied. I'm sure it was like, sir. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. While I, was, while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So we have to point out the obvious. Jesus is, is giving us a completely different, um, or another person, a completely different uh, idea. And what John is doing here, he, he's showing all these different types of people that Jesus can heal. All these different people that, that come to Jesus, and it's not just one type. And you can imagine this poor guy sitting by the pool for, for so many years, the same treatment from Jesus as one of Herod's, uh, Herod's officials. And he really asked a terrible question, hence the duh answer. Of course this guy wants to be healed. Wouldn't you want to be healed? You don't ask a question like that. I mean, where are your manners? You know, sometimes at the hospital, I, I do my rounds and visit different people, and I'm like, oh, man, that must really hurt. And sometimes I get the response of, well, yeah, you know, 
Kind of like, oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I mean, it's funny to me, but Jesus knows the exact question to push a guy's buttons. He always knows our issues that we have. Now, come to find out later, for, for this guy, and this guy only, um, it had to do with some type of sin that he had, something he was doing that was causing this. We don't know what it was, but Jesus did. Now, you will notice something else. This guy never answers the question. It's not written down. He gets a little whiny with Jesus, and Jesus says, well, do you want? Which is a very interesting word. It's, it's a driving word, Right? Well, have you lost your faith? Have you been here so long you've, been, you, you've become com- comfortable with that? I mean, people just drop by a Big Mac or some food to you and, you know, or a shekel, give you a little bit of money, and, and this long it becomes a career for this guy, right? If he is healed, what happens? No more hand, hand, handouts. He has to start working. So Jesus is dealing with a guy who really needs to think about the question, do you want to be healed? It's a yes or no question. But you can imagine, well, um, well, I don't have anyone to help me. And this is the helplessness that the Lord must bust through to help someone. Well, the doctors told me Well, I've just accepted what they said. And Jesus says, yeah, but do you want to get well? Jesus could have helped the guy down the water and had the Holy Spirit come and and do whatever, you know, they think it is and, and, and just kind of tump the guy in, you know, really fast. Sink or swim kind of thing, you know. This guy, yeah, I mean, you imagine his faith kicking in at that point, right? But Jesus never does it our way. This is why I get irritated with God a lot. He never does it my way or when I want it to be done. I wish, you know, the old easy button commercials. Was it Staples or something? The easy button? Man, I wish the Holy Spirit button, boom. Okay, done. You know, I wish I had the easy button. Jesus says in verse 8. I think this is it. It's not. Okay, you'll have to help me here. I can't see. Okay, it's that one. I got off all my slide numbers. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now, some would say he's harassing a disabled person at this point, right? You know? I wonder how he said it. Softly, angels singing in the background. Or was it, get up. Start walking. Take that, take that stinky mat with you. Now, carry that with you. Why? So others will ask. Others will see him walking around with the mat. And very quickly you get used to, you know, used to being healed and you forget all about this kind of stuff. But he's like, hey, take the mat with you. Verse 9, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on, uh, the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. So the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, you shouldn't be carrying that. They're very upset. The law forbids you to carry your mat. 
dude, come on, what are you thinking? Put that mat down right now. But verse 11, he replied, the man who, who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up this mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, which is kind of funny, you know? Wouldn't you figure out who it is that heals you? For Jesus had slipped away in the crowd that was there. Isn't this fun about Jesus? And interesting about people at the same time. You would think that after 38 years, you would catch the guy's name who healed you. I mean, the guy was into his own thing, doesn't even know who Jesus is. And there are so many people out there that I believe that are healed by Jesus and they don't even know it. And they're not even giving him the credit. Verse 14, it says, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to him, my father is always at work to this very day, and I am working too, or I too am working. Now, aren't you glad we have a 24-7 God? Aren't you glad we have a God that, that doesn't take union breaks, smoking breaks? Hey, God, could you? Oh, hold on, Alan. I'm taking my 15-minute break. I mean, you know, verse 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he, even, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. They could just be happy about this miracle, right? That's where they should be, 38 years. But instead, they're like, nice story, pal, now put down the mat. This is legalism confronting grace. Legalism preserves the rules. Grace heals the people. Legalism doesn't care about that. It is like the rules are the issue. And if you bend the rules for this guy and he gets to carry his mat, I know it's been 38 years, but that's not the point. If we bend the rules for you, then everybody's going to be carrying stuff on the Sabbath, and we just can't handle that. I mean, this is just amazing to me. Instead of, wow. This is amazing. Let's go to the temple. <coughs> go take your bath first, but let's go to the temple and let's worship the Lord. See, this is what legalism always does. It focuses on the infraction. I used to be a junior high pastor, and it's always interesting being a junior high pastor. There's a certain mindset that goes along with it, you know? And, but at the same time, there's no way I could do children's ministry. Putting me and a whole bunch of six-year-olds, and I'm just like, oh, putting me with, with sixth graders, seventh graders, and eighth graders, I'm, I'm good, okay? You know, but, but what's interesting is this. They hired me to love the kids and to teach the kids, but with the church, there's always an attitude about junior hires, okay? No, you can't really teach them much, right? I mean, you have to entertain them. 
you know, uh, uh, you know, somehow teach them a little bit. They'll catch it in the middle of it, but it's got to be about entertainment, uh, you know. And they're not really good for much, right? I mean, certainly they couldn't really serve that much. Well, in the years that I was there, we went from two junior hires that I started out with to 150 on Sundays. Now, there was times when it was a little bit crazy, okay? Someone walks in and they're like, oh, it's the junior high, and they walk right back out, you know? Uh, but, but then the Lord began to, 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 you know, with the help of the Lord, we began to do a lot of cool things with those junior hires, and I began to teach them. And eventually, we got to the book of Hebrews, and I actually had an associate pastor tell me, you can't teach junior hires Hebrews. And I looked at him, I said, it's the word of God. You can teach them anything. You know what I mean? It's like, come on. And, and we began to, and, and they were catching what they could catch out of it and all that stuff. But then with the, with the help of the Lord, they began to serve a little stuff at first. I had a sixth grader, I started to encourage him. He could play 12 string guitars, phenomenal. He ended up on the worship team. Well, they started cleaning the church and stuff, you know, helping out, set up for the women's events and, and taking down partitions we had to set up and tear down every Sunday and all this, to the point where the church was remodeling 20,000 square foot and, and you had different groups coming in and they were working on different rooms. And I said, well, I'll, you know, the junior high will, will take, take a, you know, a section. And they looked at me and they go, junior highs can't, you know, drywall and mud and tape and all that. I'm like, yeah, they can. So we got in there, and I tell you, the you know legalistic people are annoyed because junior hires are in there doing this work. But guess what? They actually mud and taped and all that a lot better than the adults did. Because, I mean, when you mud and tape, there's a way to do it, and, and uh, you can cause yourself a lot more work when it dries by, you know, through all the sanding if you don't do it well. Well, the junior hires walls look awesome. You go in there, a little sanding, we're good to paint it, we're ready to go, you know, spackle and paint. Uh, some of the adults, man, their rooms, it's like, oh no, you're going to be sanding that quite a while until you get ready to spackle and paint. Junior hires are amazing little kids. But legalism says, no, they can't do that. Legalism says, Put down the mat, or we're going to haul you away. They track him down, and finally they're like, well, you better tell us. As soon as you figure out who healed you, you need to tell us. So then they track down Jesus, and they're like, what are you doing you know, healing a guy on the Sabbath? They're not mad that the guy got healed. They're mad that it happened on a Sabbath. Why were they mad? Well, God said to rest and keep it holy, Right? It's a good concept to have. One day a week, shut down our system in a sense. One day a week, we rest. One day a week, we do something different. You know, we recuperate, enjoy life. And God says, when you do that, remember me. Remember who I am, what I've done for you. Don't forget the central core of, of who, who the, the creator is. And the Sabbath is, is like a delete button on the computer. Just delete it or, or the off button, you know, just turn it off for a while. Now, what legalism did to that, to that is to make a 38, year, you know, 38 different categories of things that you couldn't do. And under those 38 different categories, you had hundreds of rules. Building a fire is a work, so you can't do that. You can't light a lamp. You can't know. That's work. You can't turn a light switch on and off today in Israel. That's work. 
I mean, thank God for wireless stuff, right? Until the internet goes down. You can't start a car. You can't push a button in an elevator. It's work. So therefore, they have a law that you have to have two elevators and every high rise and each elevator on Sundays goes to the opposite floor. And they just go, so you just have to sit there and wait for the elevator to finally reach a floor, get in and go down. But don't touch a button. Legalism says this is the way it is. Can't bear a burden on the Sabbath. In that list is false teeth. You can't put them in your mouth. I mean, wooden leg or a prosthesis right now? Sorry. Couldn't spit? Because that's considered walking, I mean, watering the earth. And if someone stepped on it, it's like tilling the soil. I mean, we, we, we just shake our heads. But Jesus comes along and says, pick up the mat. And they're like, man, you just violated like 48 rules. Did you know you can't look in the mirror on the Sabbath? Especially for the ladies. You're tempted to do work, right? Get the makeup out. No, I mean, we laugh. I'm kind of making a joke of it, but it's true. Jesus comes right in the middle of religion, and what does he do? He heals. And this is what Jesus does. He heals us. So today, if you're in need of any type of healing, we're going to start doing this more often on Sundays. So Lily is going to come down, and I think Pam volunteered um, and they're going to come down, and during our last uh, song, if you want any prayer, come down and have prayer. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's a friendship that's messed up. Maybe you're hurt because someone hurts you, and it's hard to let it go. Maybe it's a hurt that you caused someone else. Whatever it is, take a chance. Come down. Quick prayer. You don't have to sit there and do a 30-minute counseling session, okay? That's not what this is for. But whatever it is, have enough faith to let Jesus heal it and then walk out knowing that the Lord is in control, right? So let's pray. And the worship team is going to come up. Why don't you stand as they come up and Lily and Pam will come down and... Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you bend all the rules for those that you love. Because you're not about rules, Lord. You're not about that. You're about your ways. You're about the purity of life. And Lord, there, there are people out there that are hurting. There are people out there in need of healing. There are people out there in need of your help in the middle of a situation that they feel desperate in. And we know that you're there in the middle of it. And Lord, I pray that we can get to a point where we can recognize that. Because you are the one that leads us. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. May he watch over you all the days of your life. And may you respond to him when called. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.